We should probably all just leave. That was wonderful. But students' choice, and the topic is hypocrisy. Or as one student put it to me not too long ago, Dr. Gady, you need to say something about leading a double life at Westmont. I mean, we've got people here who go to Vespers one night looking as holy as holy can be, and then the very next night they're off attending a party somewhere in town looking, well, not looking very holy, and not too worried about the contradiction that exists in their own life. Dr. Gady, I think you need to talk about hypocrisy at Westmont. Will do because it's an important topic and because it's something worth thinking about on this campus or any other. Nevertheless, I need to be honest with you at this point and say that I doubt the underlying issue here really is hypocrisy. And in fact, I think genuine hypocrisy is actually quite rare at Westmont. And in fact, I'll go even further since I'm probably already in hot water. I don't even think we see much hypocrisy at Westmont, nor do I think it's a major issue in the families from which most of us come, nor in the churches out of which we hail. Now, how can I say that, and why? Don't we all know people around here who are leading double lives, going to Vespers one night and a big party the next, as the student said? And can't we all think of people, maybe lots of them in our home churches, back in our hometowns? who are pretending to be one thing at one moment and being something else at another, acting like good Christians sometimes and good pagans at others? And isn't that pretty strong evidence that I'm wrong, that hypocrisy is a problem at Westmont and in the church at large? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Hypocrisy requires a context, and the context for hypocrisy is a culture or a subculture in which there are very clear standards of right and wrong, and where righteousness is presumed to be something one attains by doing certain things with a certain degree of frequency. Let's take an example from the Bible. What group comes to mind when you think of hypocrisy in the New Testament? The Pharisees. The word Pharisee has almost become synonymous with hypocrisy. Why? because Jesus repeatedly skewered the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, calling them snakes, vipers, broods, and a lot of other really nasty things. Jesus aimed his anger more frequently and more forcefully at the Pharisees than any other group. The question is, what made them hypocrites? And why did Jesus get so ticked off? Well, let me start with an observation. By all accounts, Jesus, in his teaching and in his conduct, was probably more closely aligned with the Pharisees than any other group. Surprised? Well, we shouldn't be, because the Pharisees were a group that attempted as hard as they could to be righteous, to live according to the law, even beyond it, so that they could do what was right. They studied the law with passion, they knew it with precision, and they set for themselves very high standards trying to live out the detail and implications of its teaching. And Jesus, well, Jesus, remember, was a big fan of righteousness. In fact, if you recall the passage we read earlier, it is very clear that Jesus thinks righteousness is every bit as important as the Pharisees, even more so. 
Indeed, Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the gates of heaven. Now, what's going on here? Why would Jesus be so critical of a group that, theologically speaking, was quite close to him and trying to do what he himself urged, that is, to live righteous lives? Well, the answer is hypocrisy. The Pharisees, too many of them anyway, were using the law not as a vehicle for loving the Lord, but as a means for loving themselves. They would promenade around Jerusalem showing off their righteousness and at the same time use the law to perpetrate injustice and fill their own purses. They were very good at pointing out the faults of others, laying on heavy burdens, we read, and exalting themselves in the process. If we return to our own campus then for just a second, a modern-day Pharisee would not attend Vespers one night and a party the next. They wouldn't be caught dead at the party. Instead, you would find them at every Vesper service in a prominent location, no doubt, and at a Bible study the night after that. They would also sit in the front row in chapel and look deeply pious throughout. No doubt they would be taking notes, making sure that everything said was biblically correct, and they would be quick to point out error errors if they found them. More than that, they would be doing all of this for show, hoping everyone would see their religiosity and admire them for their faith. And more than that, they would eagerly try to get everyone else to live up to their standards, burdening others with their long list of do's and don'ts, and profiting in some way as a result. And more than that, and finally, most importantly, it would be false, not based on love of God, but love of themselves. Now the question is, does that ring a bell? Do you see a lot of that going on at Westmont these days? Well, perhaps you can fit a few folks into that mold at Westmont, but I cannot. Nor can I think of many folks that fit it in the church I attend, nor does it seem to describe the lives of most Christians I know these days. Why is that? Well, I wish the news were good. I wish the answer was that we are just much better at loving the Lord than our ancestors, and therefore much less tempted by the sin of hypocrisy. But I fear that that's not the case. You'll remember that I said hypocrisy required a context, and the context is a culture in which there are clear standards of right and wrong and a clear sense that being righteous is a good thing. Why? Because hypocrites only benefit from hypocrisy if others envy them. Envy them for their righteousness. In Jesus' day, one could score points by looking and being very righteous. People would look at a good Pharisee and say, or at least think to themselves, ah, wish I could do that. Looking righteous gave them power and prestige. That's why they did it. But here's the problem. In our day, in our culture, looking righteous doesn't bring respect. It brings ridicule. And looking pious doesn't give you power. It just looks silly. I mean, how often have you looked at a really self-righteous straight arrow who was even a bit arrogant in his or her righteousness and envied them. You don't, nor do I. We're turned off by them, maybe even re revolted just a bit. The thing that really turns us on in this culture is when we see people who are marked by integrity. We love integrity, don't we? We admire it, want it for ourselves. But what do we mean by integrity? Well, it turns out, surprise of surprises, that for most of us it doesn't mean what it should mean. That is, people leaving, leading integrated lives around some set of common virtues.
Rather, for us, integrity means people doing their own thing, living the way they want to live without feeling burdened by the expectations of others. In other words, for us, integrity means a cultivated indifference to the needs and concerns of others and devotion to one's own agenda, one's own life, one's own aspirations. So here's the deal. In Jesus' culture, what we call integrity, they would have termed selfishness, maybe even sloth. It would not have been admired, would have been repudiated. In the same way, and for the same reason, what they called hypocrisy, we would call, but we don't call it anything at all, since we don't see it. At least in the culture at large, there's no benefit to pretending to be righteous. So why do it? Now, at this point, I would love to go off on a tangent, defending my thesis and ruminating on what all this means for us at this point in time. That's my bent, after all, as well as my training. But that's not the purpose of the morning, so I'm going to resist. All I want you to do right now is simply remember that the problem we deal with in this culture is not really hypocrisy. We shouldn't pat ourselves on the back for this, however, since I think it results not from genuine righteousness but a certain moral dullness. We are not morally alert enough to either want or recognize hypocrisy. So then the question is, the important question is, what does this mean for Westmont, for us at Westmont? And more specifically, what does this say about those of us who are leading double lives, who are going to Vespers one night and partying till the cows come home the next? If that isn't hypocrisy, what is it? If we're not trying to be hypocrites, what are we trying to be? Let me suggest three possibilities for your consideration. And I'll start off the one, with the one that seems least likely at Westmont, but certainly the most likely given our culture. First, it might result from what I would term dulled moral sensibilities. That is, morally erratic behavior could be the product of being morally obtuse, dense, unsharpened unaware, having moral Alzheimer's disease, if you will. For example, if someone was traveling through a desert and you noticed that they were meandering in every direction, going one way for a time and then suddenly cutting back in another, what would you conclude? Well, you'd assume that they were lost, that they had no compass, no map to guide them through uncharted territory. And so without a map, they lacked direction and their behavior showed it. In the same way, People without moral categories lack moral direction. They can't figure out which way to go because they have no moral map. They can't resist any tempting mirage on the horizon because they don't have a moral compass to tell them which way is true north. Lacking in moral sensibilities, in other words, they lack moral sense. Now, on the surface, you would think that this would not be a problem at Westmont, right? We are all bright folks, well-educated, honed on biblical truth, seeking to follow the Lord and do the right thing. That's why we're here. Why in the world would we even choose to come to Westmont if that were not the case? Good question. And for that reason, I doubt that this is a major problem in our community. And yet, yet we come out of a culture which struggles precisely with this issue. Indeed, that's why it's almost impossible to be a hypocrite in this culture. Righteous living is not valued enough to make it worth our pretensions. And for better or for worse, you and I are products of this culture. We have been raised on its entertainment, weaned on its pleasures, 
fed by its all-moral understandings. And it would be surprising, surprising indeed, if all this food, this steady diet, didn't have some effect. I was struck by this recently while talking with someone, a graduate of another Christian college, by the way, who was having trouble figuring out what was wrong with pornography. He's a regular user of the net and had recently found himself exploring a range of things that were pretty graphic, pretty sexually explicit. He said he found it interesting, kind of fun, and was actually wondering, you know, what the harm was. Wasn't that sort of a learning experience? And who was really being damaged by it anyway, he asked. He was doing it alone. No one else even knew about it. So what was the problem, really? As I listened to him, two thoughts ran through my mind. First, I understood exactly what he was saying. That is, his words made, made sense to me. And second, how completely nonsensical, how morally bankrupt that good sense really was. Pornography, I had to remind myself, turns people into objects. It makes those created in God's image targets of our lust. It is totally self-consuming, totally narcissistic, and about as far removed from genuine love of another and the first commandment as one can get. It harms those who make it, it harms those who use it, and it rots the soul of all concerned. And still, we have a hard time figuring out what's so bad about it. And if that's the case for a graduate of a Christian college, indeed if that was the case for me as I was listening to him, then why would we have trouble with a little vespers on one night and a little hard partying the next? Why not? What's the problem? No big deal. No moral sense. So moral dullness remains possibility number one. A second possibility, and with this I think we're getting closer to home, to be honest with you, is that the double-minded among us are not morally dull but morally weak. That is, I suspect the issue is not what we know, it's what we do. We lack what some would call the courage of our own convictions. And so we find it difficult to resist either good or evil, either a wonderful spiritual experience on one occasion or a wonderful sensual experience on the other. We're experienced junkies, in other words, without the chutzpah to say no to anything. You'll notice that I keep using the term we in my comments here, and I do that for good reason. In the first place, this is a problem with which I can identify, with which I have wrestled long and hard in my own life. And I'd gladly give you lots of examples, except we'd all be embarrassed in the process. But secondly, I say we because I suspect most of us sitting here this morning are in the same boat. I'm touching something that we can all identify with. We have all failed in the moral courage department. We all have our stories to tell, and we are all too embarrassed to tell them. Well, let me say if that's the case, good. Not good we failed, but good we're embarrassed. That may not make the therapists among us happy, but I think it's a good thing. I'm a real fan of guilt, by the way. think it's a gift. think most people need more of it. I realize, of course, that sometimes we get carried away and we beat ourselves silly with guilt. That's bad. Don't do it. But generally, most of the time, guilt is good. And the fact that we're embarrassed by our own stories here and don't want to share them, well, I take that as a positive sign. It means we're not back in the morally dull camp. Two things to keep in mind, I think, if you find yourself in the moral weakness camp. First, the bad news. God really does care about righteousness. 
When Jesus says your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, he isn't kidding. That isn't hyperbole. Jesus sets a higher standard of righteousness than anyone else in the Bible. He wasn't just against adultery. He was against lust. He wasn't just against theft. He was against coveting things. Time and time again, Jesus sets the standard higher than the law. So if perchance you've grown up with the idea that Jesus is, well, a nice guy and that being morally weak is, well, okay with him, well, forget it. Jesus weeps over our sin, and he expects his followers to live a life of deep and true righteousness. And in fact, let me go even further and give you this warning. You will not long journey with Jesus if you stay among the morally weak. It just won't happen. You'll feel too uncomfortable in his presence. You won't be able to live with the guilt. And you will find yourself either drifting away from him or finding the courage to say no to the things you should say no to and yes to the things he calls you to. And that's a warning I trust you'll take seriously. The double-minded Christian is not long double-minded or not long Christian. But Jesus also understands our plight, which is the other thing I want you to remember. He knows our weakness from the inside out. He is our brother as well as our Christ. And his understanding was so great and his love so deep that he went to the cross specifically for our rescue. And he promises us that those who desire to walk with him he will equip for the journey. He will give you the protection you need from the evil one. He will give you the hard knocks you need to toughen you up. And he will be there with outstretched hand to pull you out of the moral swamp and set you on your way. But you've got to grab the hand. Final possibility. We've talked about the options of moral dullness and moral weakness. And now we come to possibility number three in the part of my talk this morning that I am most hesitant to give. Why? Because what I'm about to say could be so easily misinterpreted and so easily misapplied. And yet I believe it is a possibility, and I believe the Lord wants us to know about it, so here it goes. I think it is possible that some people find themselves at Vespers one night and a party the next because... That's exactly what Jesus would have done and exactly what they as followers of his are called to do as well. I say this cautiously and carefully because I know it's quite possible that this interpretation could be used as a Christian justification for wrongdoing, a spiritual license to sin. But if you've been with me so far, you know that's not my meaning, nor is it anything Jesus would sanction. But what Jesus does sanction, indeed what Jesus did time and time again, was to enter the world of those he came to save, not remove himself from it. Indeed, Jesus had such a penchant for involving himself in every sector of life that he was accused, by who else? The Pharisees, of associating himself with wine-bibbers, tax collectors, and low-lifes of all kinds. Jesus did not avoid parties. At times he sought them out. Nor was Jesus at parties merely to tell everyone they were going to hell. Jesus seemed to be there in part because he regularly found listening ears there, people who were, were aware of their own impoverishment and humble enough to know their need for him, which is a lot more than he found with the Pharisees. 
Nor does it seem he was only there to preach. On one occasion, at least, he turned water into wine when the host found himself suddenly in short supply. Of course, this was a wedding party, not a Saturday night bash on State Street. And it is clear to me, anyway, that the larger purpose of this act was to establish his authority over creation, not his ability as a vintner. You'll notice that immediately after this miracle, Matthew records that the disciples believed. They were starting to see that Jesus was different. Nevertheless, the wine he made was the very best, Matthew tells us, and by his act he entered into and provided for the occasion. And so what does this mean for us? It means, first of all, that there is no conflict between following Christ and going to a good party. Indeed, he may lead you there. But second, your purpose in going to such a party is not to bolster your ego, not to prove your identity, not to score a few points, not to establish your place in the pecking order, not to drown your sorrows, not to make yourself look good, not to satisfy your every desire, not to follow the crowd, not to put others down, not to do a hundred and one other things that people generally do at parties these days, all of which focus upon me and my needs, and all of which wind up hurting others in the process, and me in the long run. So why then would we ever find ourselves at a party? Well, because there are other reasons, good reasons, to be at a party. In the first place, it might be a good party. There are some, you know. And if it is, you will find there what I call the marks of party good. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such parties, there is no law. <laughs> Instead, what there is is fellowship, good fellowship, that flows not from artificial stimulation, but the pure joy that comes from being together. That's how God created us, by the way. We need one another, and it is good to affirm that God-given dimension of our humanity. But not every party is a good one. And even at a good party, not everyone is there who is there is a happy camper. And for that reason, I think it is pretty likely, perhaps inevitable, that you will sometimes find there the kind of people that Jesus so often seemed to find. Needy people. Vulnerable people. People who are weak and aware of their own weakness. And when you do, when you encounter such people, you will have a choice to make. And everything will turn on that choice. For their need will become for you either an opportunity for their fulfillment or for your own. And you will be for them either a source of solace or sorcery, a listening heart, a listening ear, or a pounding heart, the one who provides a healing touch or a touch of another kind altogether. And at that moment you will know, finally, you will know why you are at the party and you will know who has brought you. And so will the hosts of heaven. How's your party life this morning, friends? Or more important, what was it like this weekend? And what will it be like in the weekends to come? If you are more among the morally dull, it won't much matter because you probably aren't listening anyway. And if you were, I doubt it would have much effect. 
But let those with ears hear. You are a walking time bomb. At some point, you're going to go off and you're going to take a lot of other folks with you. In other words, you're going to have a lot to account for. And on the day of accounting, you will be dull no longer. For the rest of us this morning, however, I suspect the real issue is not about moral dullness, but moral weakness. And the real question is not, do we care, but what is the consequence of our caring? In other words, do we have the courage to live according to our convictions, whether we are at a Vespers or a party, whether we're in class or out of it, whether we're plugged into the Internet or an acoustical guitar, whether someone's watching us or we're doing the watching? Will we have the courage to do what we know is right? The answer is important, by the way, because your answer to that question will determine not only how you behave, but who you are and who you will become. In other words, your future hangs in the balance. And I believe that all the world is hanging there with you. Strong statement? I don't think so. You are a very talented bunch, you know. You have been given privilege and ability and potential that is given to very, very few. You have been put in a place, a college, that is absolutely rare in higher education. Rare because of the quality of teaching that you get here. Rare because of the depth of Christian conviction that undergirds it. But also rare because of the freedom it gives you to explore your own convictions and discover what it means for you to follow Christ and love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can take those gifts and that freedom and party on, dude. You won't do it for long, but you can do it for a while. Or you can take those gifts and that freedom and become the person that Christ is calling you to become. To whom much is given, much is required. But to those who know what they have been given and by whom much is appreciated, and much will be their reward. May it be so with you and with me. Amen.